recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. Welcome to Krista Getting Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 7th, 2012. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I have um, today with me Carolyn Yeager, and we are going to talk about Henry Ford's The International Jew. I'm guilty of not having read 90% of The International Jew. I, I, I read Chapter 1 today, actually. And, and um, Carolyn has been reading it. Carolyn Yeager has been reading it. And, and um, she, she's quite interested in it. And, and um, she, offered, you know, she, she offered to um, do a program and, and talk about it. And, and I was more than welcome to do that. So here we are. The International Jew was written as a series of newspaper articles for the Dearborn Independent, a newspaper which Henry Ford owned, beginning in May of 1920. And William J. Cameron was his editor, and and I'll let Carolyn talk a little bit more about him in a minute. William J. Cameron was his editor and and, um, actually published those articles over a period of almost two years. After that, they were published, the, the articles were compiled and published as a book known as The International Jew. The book was at one time given away with, with, with um, Ford Motor Cars, if I'm not mistaken. No, I don't think it was a book, was it, Bill? I think it was a newspaper. I have here that the newspaper was... Uh, well, well was, yes, it started as a newspaper, but it was later yeah. compiled as a book. Yeah, but it was a newspaper that was um, every, every Ford dealer had to circulate the newspaper one to every uh, to anybody who bought a car but also to, to you know circulate it around and that's why that it had such a, it had a pretty big circulation okay. so you know well, Ford was really using his business his his business to try to promote some of his uh, personal views and beliefs which we can only uh, admire him for doing that. <clears throat> You know, I mean, he took, he, he took a, I'm sure there was some criticism of it. <laughs> and he took, you know, he, he just used his, his influence that he had, rightly, and, uh, and used it for that. Well, well, right. From what I understand, there was an awful lot of criticism of it. And, and um, he was actually quite hated for it in, in certain circles. Oh, sure. Sure. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you led me here to this Metapedia article. And it's interesting because, um, you know, I didn't know the background of it, and all I knew is that it, that he had written these things in his newspaper, but it wasn't actually Ford himself who wrote these articles, which might disappoint some people, but he, um, I don't know how much he, he certainly read them, he certainly knew what was in them, and he, uh, he went over them before they went into the paper, and later, when his, when the libel lawsuits came came up, the Jews were uh, the story that they ended up putting out uh, was that uh, he didn't even know what was in them. He didn't write them. He didn't read them. He you know they were written by other people, and he just allowed them to be put into this newspaper of his. And so he he didn't agree with it, and he had now said he didn't agree with it, and all that, which is all put out, and he allowed it to be put out because he was under such uh, duress at the time, I guess, but he never he never publicly agreed to that, you know, and uh, he told some of his close associates that, uh, that who were, I think it was someone who was writing a biography of him, that he didn't, uh, he didn't agree, he didn't ever agree to that. 
So, um, you know, to say that, well, to say that he, uh, that he had, uh, this is the story that so many people accept now, because this is, this is the story the Jews put out. But uh, to say that he would allow all this stuff for several years to go into this newspaper of his, which he promoted, especially and made all his four dealerships hand out and so on. Um, and he didn't know what was in it. And they, and they were, had his byline by Henry Ford is just crazy. He absolutely knew everything that was in it. Yeah. He, um, and, and the Ford apology, the so-called apology is a known forgery. And it's been contested right from the beginning. That he never. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if it's a, it's a forgery. I, from my understanding, and you know, this is a little hard to get get it get it straight. I mean, I I I, I don't know that you know what would be the absolute truth, you know, true account of it. But what what I understand is that uh, is that his one of his trusted aides. I don't know if it was Cameron. I think it was Cameron, who who agreed to it for him. Uh, and and he thought that he needed to do it, uh, you know, because they were they were destroying the Ford business. So uh, he he took care of all of that, and Ford let him let him do it. Uh, when he got the he got the letter, I think it was Cameron. He got the letter from the uh, from the Jewish agencies, and you know, it was like the American Jewish Committee or something was the head of this whole group that was that was protesting about this, and and and. Uh, came up with this agreement that, you know, that they would come to, what do you call it when you come to agreement outside of court? Um, and that, uh, that he, that, that he, oh, they, they wrote the statement and send it. And Cameron talked to Ford on the phone or, or whoever it was and said that it's pretty bad. Uh, you know, he was going to read it to Ford and Ford said, I don't even want to hear it. Uh, you just take care of it. And uh, Cameron uh, I, I don't even know if he said you just take care of it. Only thing I read was that he said I don't want to hear it, and he didn't listen to it. And uh, so Cameron went ahead on his own, or whoever it was, if it was Cameron. Yeah, and, yeah, I, I and, have. And, uh, yeah, and and agreed and agreed to it. I mean, you know, accepted it or whatever, and uh, and then that was the end of it. But Ford never did really agree to it. Well, well, I have it here, and in, in, um, this is by Gerald L. K. Smith. That this is a forward to the condensed version of yeah, that's maybe where I read all this right and and it wasn't Cameron, it was a man named um Harry Bennett, right okay all right and um i I'd like to read this to set the the record straight as far as we can and, okay. and um i'm going to start I'm not going to start at the beginning, it's a long document, but the day finally came when the one ambition of the Jews was fulfilled. Mr. Ford apologized for publishing the International Jew and blamed his subordinates for the deed. In 1940, I, meaning Gerald L.K. Smith, who was actually a congressman and a, and a distinguished man, in 1940, I interviewed Mr. Ford on numerous occasions. In fact, on the day before his first automobile was put under glass, he and Mrs. Ford invited Mrs. Smith and myself to be their guests at Dearborn. On this occasion, he told me the whole story of his first car and how he happened to make it. Among the precious souvenirs which had come to Mrs. Smith and myself is a New Testament autographed by Mr. Ford and handwritten letters from Mrs. Ford commenting favorably on some of my speeches and expressing in her own handwriting Mr. Ford's appreciation for my activities. And actually, um, Gerald L.K. Smith was associated with Wesley Swift at, at one time. It was on the occasion of one of these personal visits with Mr. Ford that he gave me a sensational and shocking report. He said, Mr. Smith, 
My apology for publishing The International Jew was given great publicity, but I did not sign that apology. It was signed by Harry Bennett. For the information of the reader, Harry Bennett was the very officious and aggressive employee of the Ford Motor Company. He presumed his way into the confidence of Mr. Ford and later became known as an enigmatic and obnoxious personality. Space will not permit a thorough discussion of the activities of Harry Bennett. Mr. Ford's personal secretary for 34 years, Mr. Ernest Liebold, and we understand that Liebold was involved in the publication of The International Jew, told me that one of the worst things that ever happened to the Ford Motor Company was the employment of Harry Bennett. For a certain period of time, Bennett exerted virtually a dictatorial control over the affairs of the company. His alleged deeds, if summarized, might make a rather scandalous book. When Mr. Ford told me he had not signed the apology, it seemed almost unbelievable. In fact, I could scarcely believe my own ears. Furthermore, on the occasion of the same visit, Mr. Ford said, Mr. Smith, I hope to republish the international Jew again sometime. He showed no signs of regret for having published it in the beginning. And it goes on and, and that's on. Right. But, but that's on, so, available on a yeah. second messenger website. Yeah. All right. So that's, I think that's uh, important to, uh, to bring out some of this because there's so, there's so much false information out there. And when you start talking about the international Jew, if people will say, oh, well, Ford didn't really write that and he, he uh, denounced it and blah, 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 well, you need to have some answers. For that and uh, so that that was so that is what I read too and I was trying to remember it and I didn't see Bennett's name here under these names I've got in front of me because he wasn't one of the real helpful guys but you know here's something interesting about how how it was carried out um, there is this Ernest Liebold uh, who worked for Ford and he was the editor and then William Cameron uh, was a uh, formerly of uh, the uh, Detroit News, which also E.G. Tip was formerly of the D- Detroit News. So he had these newsmen, and also Marcus Woodruff, and then uh, a guy who was business manager. And he he purchased a, a used press and installed it in his, one of his tractor plants in the Rouge, where, wherever that is. And they started in 1999, 19, 1919. Uh, that was the first the first issues, which were called something else. Like the first, uh, in 1919, it came out as, um, where did that go? Uh, the Chronicler of the Neglected Truth. And then it became, uh, and then, it, then that, that I think was the story, not the name of the newspaper, uh, because it was the Ford International Weekly. Um, in, uh, some of this is a little confusing. All right, the and and then it became uh, the international Jew, the world's problem, and he started publishing the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and that was also really amazing in, in 1920. So, uh, but then this Ernest Liebold helped to organize a special detective agency, which was generously financed by Ford to investigate prominent Jews and Gentile liberals. Now, this is from Metapedia, so you know I can't guarantee this, but it, it's probably more than what I know about it. Um, and it's probably a little more balanced than Wikipedia. Yeah, for sure. And this, they were thought to be, they were investigating prominent Jews and Gentile liberals who were thought to be crypto-Jews. So you see, and I, you know, this is, you really need, you, 
they would have needed detectives. They would have needed all this to find out all this information. And that's another reason why this, why I was in the International Jew, all four volumes of it, too, is a lot of it, um, is so, uh, so uh, important for us to know because all, all this, was, this was dug out at the time, information that was not available to the average person at all. And this uh, detective agency was headquartered in New York, you know, where, where the center of the of American Jewry was. It was under the direction of a, a man named Daniel, the former lawyer for the Justice Department. And then uh, the, some of those people were former Secret Service agents, says. And then William Cameron was editor uh, of the Independent uh, after, I think, this uh, other fellow... Pip left for some reason, and Cameron became editor. Not Pip, but um, who did I say was editor? Um, yeah, Pip. And then, um, let's see. Uh, he he wrote most of the most of the article. Okay, uh, Lee Bowles and his detectives provided the evidence, and, uh, and Cameron wrote the article. And uh, but he. Uh, he, he gave a lot of credit to Liebold. He said, you know, without him and his detectives and so on, he, he certainly couldn't have done what he did. So, um, but uh, Ford was very close to his Cameron. And uh, so he, he knew what they were, he knew what was in there. I mean, they certainly weren't putting this stuff in this paper on the road without him knowing about it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I have to say a few things about Cameron because... I know that some people listening tonight will will, un, will will recognize that name, right? William J. Cameron wrote a Christian identity book called The Covenant People, and he was definitely, I don't think he was American Christian identity in, in the mold of um, what Wesley Swift or, um, or, or later Bertrand Compre, but he was definitely at least of the, the British identity variety of Christian identity, and... and um, he wrote that book in 1933. From the first chapter, from reading the first chapter of the International Jew today in preparation for this program, I can say that the first chapter of the International Jew basically has no um, Christian identity knowledge in it whatsoever. It, it basically takes a very mainstream position on the identity of the Jewish people mm -hmm. and, and identifies them with the Old Testament, which I think is a fault of Henry Ford's, and, and I'll explain that later on maybe when, when we get to it, but um, I think it's unfortunate that people so easily take for granted the Jewish claims that they're the people of the Old Testament, and, and we've been making that mistake for a long time. Yes, well, I know I know you would see it that way, and you know, as far as I know, there weren't that many, weren't many people who were aware of, I had any idea about Christian identity or British Israel, in the ni in 1920, but I don't know that. I suppose you would right away tell me that I'm wrong with that. Well, well right. <laughs> it wasn't widely circulated, was it? I mean, in, in Britain, British, British Israel was very big in 1920. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and, and and a lot of the upper class elites were, were involved in British Israel, but it was already infiltrated by Jews. Rudyard Kipling was British Israel. Queen Victoria was British Israel. There there was a whole the British Israel. Um, World Federation had its headquarters right, right, right at Westminster Abbey, right, right at the same on on the same street. 
as Westminster Abbey. It was very big in British politics in, in 1920. Rudyard Kipling, and I could demonstrate from his yeah. poems that he was definitely British Israel. But it was ridic- because they embraced the Jews, British Israel ended up being gutted and ridiculed, and today it's practically, it, it's an old man's country club today, and it's a laughing stock, right? It's an old man's club today in Britain with a lot of money, and, and it's a laughing stock. Well, in the first chap in this first chapter, and there are eighty chapters in these in these four volumes. So there's there's just a, a wealth of, and every one of them is as interesting as can be. I have not read them all. I just I actually just started reading this myself, and I'm, I've, I've been studying uh, chapter one yesterday and today. So, uh, and it's it's just full of stuff. And in chapter one, you won't uh, you you will find some uh, pretty good criticisms of uh, England. And the British, usually it's called England in the English, so uh, we'll get to that. Well, in the preface, uh, every uh, the beginning of each volume has a preface, and the preface for volume one um, is fairly short, but it, it, I'll just pull out a few sentences. It says, uh, the Jewish question has existed in the United States for a long time. It starts out, why discuss the Jewish question? But then a few sentences later it says, that the question has existed in the United States for a long time. Well, this is 1919 uh, or whenever they were actually wrote it, 1918 or something, and um, and already the question has existed for a long time. And and uh, this is this is kind of interesting in itself. And it says that it's now a, approaching an acute stage at this time. And I think, Bill, you were going to talk about the. The world scene that, you know, we know that at this time, 1920 was when, uh, well, 1919, really when uh, Adolf Hitler uh, started his political career in Germany and talking a lot about the Jews. But that was not an unusual thing because the Jews had were seen in Germany uh, at that time and during during and, and right around the end of the World War One as being... Uh, as having set the stage for the ruination of Germany. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of awareness of what the Jews were up to, and and uh, Ford is is pointing out here, or his writers are pointing out that uh, that there is a lot in the United States and, and everywhere. This this Jewish problem is has reached an acute stage. And this is now almost a hundred years ago. Well, well, I have a couple of pages here I, I'd actually like to read, and 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 if you want to set the stage like that. I have um, extracts from the Russia Number One report. There, there are actually two reports published uh, on Christogenia.org. One of them is only a PDF. I have plans to use optical character recognition on it and, and to edit it and, and publish it in text, but it's a very long document, and, and it's called Russia Number One. And Russia Number One is actually a collection of British intelligence reports that were made and, and transmitted to the British foreign minister, and, and that was actually Lord Balfour at the time, who was a Jew, right, and, and um, responsible for the Balfour Declaration. Mm-hmm. Well, well, this was actually published as a report called the Russian Number One Report by the British government in 1919, and it was retracted very quickly. I don't. It's a. It's it's somewhat providential that it ever got published in the first place because it lays the blame and and 
the, the Bolshevik Revolution in the Russian number one report is seen virtually as a criminal act, and it lays the blame right on the Jews. And it, it's amazing, but it was retracted very quickly. And we have copies. I, I mean, when I say we, I mean the group of people that I'm associated with through Christogenia. We have actual hard copies of the number one Russian number one report, and I have the actual of the original, and I have the actual facsimiles on on the Mein Kampf project website and and on Christogenia in in PDF format. Well, well, another report, which we actually have hard copies and and facsimiles of, is the memorandum on certain aspects of the Bolshevist movement in Russia. This is a United States government report that's very much like the Russian number one report, except that it's from a different perspective. This perspective is from mostly... Um, the papers and articles and newspaper releases of the Bolsheviks themselves accompanied with some diplomatic reports, whereas the Russian number one report in Britain is mostly reports of the, the British man in the street in Russia and what he is witnessing as having occurred. The U.S. report corroborates it in every respect without that personal flavor, right? And, and, and with a much more intimate look at the, the words of the Bolsheviks themselves, well, which agree that, that it's, the Bolshevik Revolution was criminal and, and Jewish in nature. And, and the U.S. report is actually um, filed by, sec, by Tre- Secretary of State Robert Lansing, and, and um, it was presented to Congress. It was re- actually presented to Henry Cabot Lodge, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee for the United States Senate in 1919 and these reports fully reveal Mm -hmm. the absolute criminal and the absolute jewish nature of the bolshevik revolution and that even though there were other non-jews involved in it that the leaders were all jewish and and that it was a jewish plan for the destruction of Tsarist Russia, which was actually being implemented. And the, the reports um, don't really get into the international sources of the Bolsheviks' ability to pull this off, but, but that, they, that we can guess them, right? I, I mean, that, that's... That they had yeah. Plenty yeah, well, that, that, that's even... Uh, it had to come... Yeah, this, the, all that's gone into in one place or another, uh, different chapters in, in, uh, in this book. Well, yeah. well, right, and, and what I'm saying yeah. is that there's definitely a basis for yeah. most for, for mostly everything that Henry Ford says, and it's right in readily identifiable documents. Well, we have um, on on my mind comp site, I have um, an article, a reproduction of an article called "The Revolution in Russia," National Geographic magazine, May 1907, which blamed the first revolution in in Russia, basically, you know, on the Jews. It, it it, it revealed the Jewish role behind the first Russian Revolution before the Bolshevik Revolution. That, then there's um, American Jews in the Bolshevik oligarchy from the Literary Digest magazine, March 1919. And it fully identifies all the, all the major American Jews that became Soviet Bolsheviks, right? And the Bolsheviki, who they are and what they believe, was actually another article revealing that. And there's other articles on, on the site which all are contemporary, 
And Ford wrote that, um, and I mentioned all this before, because Ford wrote in chapter one of the International Jew, he says, in Russia, he, meaning the Jew, is charged with being the source of Bolshevism, an accusation which is serious or not according to the circle in which it is made. Well, well he, he, you know, he's making the illusion that it's generally known that the Jew is the source of Bolshevism, but the, um, the, the Jew was able to disguise that. The Jews were able to disguise... The Jew, to the general public, to the masses, mm-hmm. the, 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 the totally Jewish nature of, of, of Bolshevism for a very, very long time. Yeah, and, they, you know, he mentions how, you know, at, at another place where they, they were able to uh, hush things up because they brought up always the idea that it was based on prejudice. See, everything, this is, this is what they did then, this is what they do now. They say that... Uh, this is, becomes anti-Semitism if you criticize them or say anything about them. It, 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 it's in the realm then of prejudice, or it brings that up. And so, based on that, they're able to hush it up because they can, you know, they can say, "Well, that's just a prejudice against us." All this, like what you were talking about last week, the the child murder and uh, the blood libels and so on. You know, that's all based on just because uh, people hate Jews. It's all based on anti-Semitism. Well, he also says in this, uh, in this uh, preface, uh, he, he brings out that the, the question reaches down into South America and is an important factor in Pan-American relations. You know, we used to have a real Pan-American ideas, you know, in the United States, we had relations in our own hemisphere. Now America seems to only have relations with Israel. That's, that's what came to my mind. It's like, who do we really have relations with now except Israel? That just that's in the forefront all the time. It trumps everything else. And uh, but anyway, this is this is what we've all come to. But here at the end of his preface, he says something interesting. He says that the tone of these articles is all that it should be. Uh, the international Jew and his satellites as the conscious enemies of all that Anglo-Saxons mean by civilization are not spared. Nor is that unthinking mass. That's the mass out there of us, which defends anything that a Jew does simply because it has been taught to believe that what Jewish leaders do is Jewish. And, you know, I had to think about that for a while. I thought, well, what's he, what's he really saying there? But it, it, to me it comes to that it's, it's another version of, and which they are denouncing here, of blame the whites who give in to the Jews because their Jews are just doing what Jews do. How much do we hear that now? Well, don't blame the Jews. They're just being Jews. That's how Jews are. Um, and blame the whites for giving into it. Well, we're going to learn there's a, lot of, there's a lot more to it than just saying standing up to the Jews and saying, you know, we're not going to tolerate this. So, um, but this idea, he says, they're not, they're not accepting in, in, these, uh, in these writings that, uh, that it's okay because Jews are just doing what is Jewish, you know? You follow that? Well, well, right. Well, well, Jews can do what Jews are expected to do, but that doesn't make it okay. No. You know, we, we can't have them in our nation. You know, that, that's like if you have a, 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 a classroom full of kids and a wolf comes in the door and starts eating one of the kids and the teacher just stands there and says, well, well it's okay. Wolves are just doing what wolves do. Yeah, exactly. So leave exactly. the wolf alone? So you, so you leave the wolf yeah, and yeah. let him eat well, a few more well, kids? Well, don't punish the wolf. You, maybe you try to save the kid, but, but don't punish the wolf because he's just being a wolf. Yes, that's exactly how they – that's exactly yeah, how Yeah, you have to shoot the wolf. <laughs> yeah, you have to 
right, don't do it again. All right, then, <laughs> then, it, then it follows, he says, uh, neither, what well, we just said, and then neither do these articles proceed upon a false emotion of brotherhood and apology. As if this uh, stream of doubtful tendency in the world were only accidentally Jewish. That's another thing people say. Uh, uh, you know, oh, he just happens to be Jewish. You know, well, I like that. He doesn't, he's not going to go along, they're not going to go along with brotherhood and apology. And he, boy, this is really tough stuff. And then uh, the idea that people are always saying, well, uh, so-and-so just happens to be Jewish, and then they go on to talk about him. And so it's just, it's, it's not an important part of them, you know. It's just uh, like, you know, their, uh, their religion or something. Adolf Hitler wrote about the Jewish promotion of pacifist democracy in, in Germany. And, and that's, exact, that, that's, that, that's exactly what Henry Ford is saying here. And it's the Jewish ideal in Judeo-Christianity that has created a whole race of pacifist Christians that you should accept at everything that, that, that's all of the disgusting, foul things happening in your society around you, that the pacifist Christianity and pacifist democracy teach us, condition us to accept those things. And, and the Jewish media, the Frankfurt School, that they've all been behind that. Yes, yes. It's all, it's all about excusing the Jew. It's all about covering up for the Jew, and it comes in all kinds of guises. And they're very successful at it. Now, you know, this, these articles came out, this book came out, it's been available. And yet every, most people are still doing that, excusing today. It just continues. Well, and what well, we want to do is to get people, get our people, uh, to, to, uh, to spread the word as much as they can and get, reach as many people, as many white people as we can and tell them how it really is and how it's really been so that they'll cut out this excuse, making excuses, because it really can't go on. Well, well you just quoted Henry Ford's um, preface as saying that the Jew is the enemy of Saxon culture, and, mm-hmm. and Adolf Hitler said the same thing all the time, that the Jew yep. was the enemy and the destroyer of everything that there was beautiful and, and creative in white civilization, in, in white Germanic culture. And that's we we saw that here in America, close up and and personal in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And it, it's the the influence of the Jewish, the the Jews that have run or have been allowed to run our entertainment industry that has destroyed white culture and our television in Hollywood. They've destroyed white culture. They've mongrelized it. That they've made it a caricature of what it used to be. And it's it's vile now, and it's multicultural, and it's not any longer white. But it not only destroyed our culture; they've destroyed, they've actually destroyed, you know, physical whole cities and towns and and uh, countries and nations. I mean, God, the destruction when you can really look at it and know that the Jew is behind it, and it really is behind it, even though there's a lot of destructive forces in the world. We always find those those, those Jews those Jews behind it. Um, they, they, otherwise, it, it couldn't have been done in that to that extent. So uh, they're just the, the, when you understand the, the depth and the breadth of the destruction, and and how it's possible to stop it, 
if we would just uh, wake up and stop worrying about being prejudiced. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. Now, this preface to the, uh, I mean, there's, there's a quote that uh, precedes the chapter one. <laughs> we may get to chapter well, one. Well, let me get one more thought. One more thought <laughs> okay. before we proceed on the Jews being behind the destruction of white civilization. On, on, on my Saxon Messenger site, I have a couple of videos. One of Annette Kahane, a Jewess, and another one of Barbara Lerner Spector, who's yeah. also a Jewish, a Jewess. And, and they are both admitting openly that Jews are the leading force behind the invasion of Europe by all the blacks and the Arabs and, and, and admitting and asserting that Europe will no longer be a monolithic white society. And, and they're admitting well, they're admitting they're, it. They are the destroyers. They're admitting it as a good thing. Oh, yes, we're doing this, you know, and, and it, it will never be the same again. This Europe will never be a well, white country again. When we point out we're racist, when we point it out we're evil, when we point out what they're doing, we're evil, but when they boast of what they're doing, it's okay. Yeah, well, they see it as a good thing, incredibly. And, of course, we need uh, we need to teach our people, all of our people, even those who don't think like we do presently, you know, that this is not a good thing. How can it possibly be good? Gee, what, you know, we, we need to get sane here. Uh, okay, here's the, the, this little, uh, from it's from the New International Encyclopedia. A little, uh, I'll just read it. Uh, among the distinguishing mental and moral traits of the Jews, well, this would have been, I guess, in 19, around 1920. This is what they were saying in the encyclopedia. I don't know if this was a Jewish international encyclopedia or a regular one, but says the distinguishing mental and moral traits of the Jews may be mentioned. They are distaste for hard or violent physical labor. We know that. Uh, a strong, so, you know, like during, during, the, uh, so, during the war, World War II, when they were put into labor camps or into labor groups, that they had to portray that then as the worst atrocities occurring in the worst possible way because just the idea of having to be made to, to, to uh, carry out physical labor was totally uh, hateful to them. Now, uh, a strong family sense and philoprotogenitiveness, they do have that, which means they're prolific. You know. well, well, it means that they love to have children, and now whites are being taught to hate having children. Yeah, yeah. Well, so part of them, a part of them want to have children, and some of them don't want to have children anymore much. But anyway, this was back then. And then a marked religious instinct, well, again, some of them, the Orthodox, have this super over, they overdo it, you know, in their religious uh, Carrying on. Well, well even the atheists. Now, atheists, atheists so. No, but atheism is a religion, Carolyn. I, I mean, okay. that's the way. <laughs> I, you cannot be an atheist. A, a religion is a belief system, and atheism is a religion. And the atheist Jews are just as um, zealous at being atheists and insisting that everything is atheistic as the, the Talmudic Jews are zealous of the Talmud, right? Yeah, I, yeah, that, that's good because, you know, it's like, uh, their instinct or their desire is for thought, for thinking about things, being very zealous about it all and creating these, these uh, uh, what would you call, narratives and ideas and so on. And it's not in actually producing things at all. It's not, it's not in the physical part of life. It's in, it's in this mental, uh, religious 
aspect. So now they also have, uh, it says here in this encyclopedia, they have the courage of the prophet and martyr rather than of the pioneer and soldier. Where, you know, we, we have prophets and martyrs and pioneers and soldiers both, but they have, um, they, they really are on the side of, they, they're, they're caught up in their religious ideas more than anything. And then they have remarkable power to survive, must be remarkable power to survive in adverse environments. So that's supposed to be a good good thing they have. They do. They they are able to do that. Uh, kind of like you know cockroaches and rats and things. Then there, uh, this is combined with the ability to retain racial solidarity. They have a capacity for exploitation. It says both individual and social shrewdness and astuteness in speculation and money matters generally. An oriental love of display. They have that oriental uh, quality to them and a full appreciation of the power and pleasure of social position. And then it says that they have a high intellectual ability. Well, that's, that's the description of this, of what we call the Jew. And the first chapter is the Jew in character and business. And the first sentence there is the Jew is again being singled out for critical attention throughout the world. See what he was saying in the preface, his emergence, um, you know, has been complete and spectacular since the war. I mean, he's come out into into the public eye, so to speak. He, the, the Jews really came out uh, after World War One, and then they started. We started seeing how powerful they were and how active they were everywhere, and then that's brought them uh, in for some critical attention. And uh, he says this intensive scrutiny of his nature and supernationality is uh, is new. So before, you know, the Jews were kind of hiding, um, you know, uh, as a people that nobody wanted to have around very much, and they were working behind the scenes always with their networking. But now they they came out in, into the open in the uh, early 20th century, and uh, and we, he says uh, that they're put under the microscope the reasons for their separateness and the reasons for their uh, well, the reasons for their separateness may be defined and understood. So, and you know, I just note here that this is what we want to do. I said this already, but we want to carry out intensive scrutiny of the Jew and teach our people to know and understand uh, uh, these things about the Jew because the whole idea is that if you start to do this, that's when you're attacked. If you start looking closely at Jews and talking about what they're up to and what they're doing, which is never going to be any good for, for uh, us, for white people, well, then you're going to be labeled, of course, an anti-Semite, and uh, and you're going to be called all kinds of names. So they don't want this scrutiny of themselves, right? No, you, you. As soon as you mention the word Jew, if you're white, you're an anti-Semite. That they don't even like being identified. That they don't That's like right. any scrutiny whatsoever. They love to stay hidden. Well, there's some of them now who really like to get out there. They, they, you know, they're Jews and they're proud of all this stuff. But there's, but they still want to control just where you can go and what you can say about them. Well, well, you know, Christine Miller, I, I have to read this. This is so great. I'm going to put it in the Saxon Messenger real soon, right? Mm-hmm. Christine Miller wrote this article, Blacklisted by History, and, and you know, in in she she makes an, an allusion, well, well, an example from the writings of Homer, and the story where Ulysses, the hero of, of the, um, the Odyssey, right? Well, well he, 
stabs the Cyclops in the eye, and that allows him and his men to escape by, because he blinded the Cyclops, right? And when the Cyclops said, who did this to me? Ulysses yelled out, my name is no one. And the Cyclops ran out of his cave blind, holding his eye and, and announcing to all the other Cyclops that nobody did this to me. No one did this to me. No one did this. And all the other Cyclops were like, well, well, so what's your problem if no one did this to you? No one did what to you? And, yeah. and, and, and that ruse allowed Ulysses and his men to, to escape. And, and she says that the Jews use a similar ruse with this variation. They do not call themselves no one, but anyone. Let me explain. The history books call the 1917 November Revolution in Russia either the Russian Revolution or the Communist Revolution, when it should be called the Judeo-Communist Revolution. And in other words, the Jews get away with all these crimes because they never like being identified. Mm -hmm. And that's how they get away with it, because they're Russians that are doing it. Oh, oh they're Marxists. Or, or they're Bolsheviks, or they're Russians. Well, what's a Bolshevik in the mind of most people? It, it's a Russian revolutionary, right? right? And, and if you ask right. the, the common person in the street, it's never a Jew. Mm-hmm. It, it's not yeah, the yeah. 60s radicals. The 60s radicals, they were all Jews. For the most part, 90% of them were Jews. The mm-hmm. Chicago 7, six of them were Jews. It, it's, you know, but they're, not, they're never the seven Jews or, or the six Jews and an idiot in Chicago. It's the Chicago 7. They're never um, the, the Jewish revolutionaries or the Jewish agitators of the 1960s. They're the 60s radicals. They're, they're never Jews, and, and it's always Jews. Yeah, well, they, as, as it said in here, that in, uh, after World War I, they started becoming more visible, and uh, people started looking askance and talking about them. And, and it says in this chapter one in Russia, uh, the Jews charged with being the source of Bolshevism, in Germany, he's charged with being the cause of the empire's collapse. Um, and in England, he's charged with uh, being the real world ruler. He rules by the power of gold and plays nation against nation, uh, remaining himself discreetly in the background, is what you were saying. And, you know, England is accused, really, of being uh, the most uh, taken in by the Jews or where the Jews have gotten the the best foothold, except for America, of course. Absolutely. Coming right along. And uh, then it says, uh, in America, it's pointed out uh, to what extent uh, the Jews uh, swarmed through the war organization. This was the World War One, Principally, those departments which dealt with the commercial and industrial business of war. <laughs> yeah, the business of war. Well, well it's setting you a little... Uh, I'm yeah, sorry. Well, we, we, we just finish here. And they've clung to the advantage of... Uh, being agents of the government, I mean, they just continued then. You know, they, they, they work for the government. The government's happy to deal with you because they're so good at, at all this stuff that has to be done. Go ahead, Bill. Well, well, yes, but what upset me a little reading this first chapter mm-hmm. is Ford saw all this Jewish influence in the government in 1920 without mentioning the Federal Reserve and the corruption of Woodrow Wilson, yeah, which I is know. what allowed the Jews to get to that point. Well, that must be later in the book, though. There have to, I know that there are some, there's chapters about all of that stuff. You know, I went through all the chapters because I was copying them all, so I would have it all myself in my own file. And, uh, and I'm sure that's there, but you're right, it's not in this first chapter. Not at all. Right, right. I thought so that people he... were writing it. I don't know, uh, Ford didn't, again, you know, he had uh, these, these uh, investigators and so on 
doing it. Why they didn't bring that out? Now I guess they were saving it for later. Or well, 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 it, it's very possible. The, the term Federal Reserve is mentioned in six or seven of these chapters. I did not yet examine them all. I just did a quick search this afternoon, and mm-hmm. and, um, and and I got sidetracked looking at something else, right? Because there's just so much here that it yeah. can't be researched for a program in a day, right? No. Well, um, well, well it, it's I would have never wrote what he wrote in that chapter without at least some allusion to the power that the Jews gained in our government through the corruption of Woodrow Wilson, and that was all through Samuel Untermeyer and, and the Lotus Club members and, and the New York bankers that put Wilson in power and, and because they already owned him, and, and, the, um, and, and the, the, the institution of the Federal Reserve. Well, if you got all of that, you couldn't have put all of that in Chapter 1. So well, well, no, but you could have made some illusion that, that they, they got all this power through the New York bankers or through the institution of the Fed. I would have put, made some mention to it to, to give people well, the idea. Well, there's something in here about the bankers later on. This is, these chapters are pretty long. So uh, let's uh, – okay, so I'll, we'll, we'll keep that in mind as we go along. Um, now uh, – where was I? So he says, uh, again, you know, just bringing the question of the Jews. Here's where he says it, uh, to the fore. And, but like other questions with, which lend themselves to prejudice, efforts will be made to hush it up as impolitic for open discussion. So, you know, they, that's what we were already saying. When you start talking about it, they say, oh, well, let's not talk about this. This is not, this is not nice. It might be, you know, prejudice. Jews cry out prejudice and whites are intimidated. But also whites fear economic retaliation, and a lot of people then feared economic retaliation already. You know, in fact, there is economic retaliation going back pretty far uh, by the Jews. That's the one thing that they always manage to do. They always manage to uh, get uh, control, get uh, power in in financial areas, and then they held the, the strings of it kind of, and they could do a lot of nasty things which they kept secret, you know, amongst themselves. I mean, uh, they did a lot of things that, that weren't really... Uh, that well, well, Jews are inherently dishonest. They act as a cabal. The Talmud, yeah. their own religious book, the Talmud is their real religious book, gives them license to the property of non-Jews. It gives them license to it. It expects yeah, that their religion expects them to seize and steal and, and abscond the property of non-Jews. And that's how they operate in our society, and Christians don't understand it. And, and in the Jewish mind, when, when he absconds with the property of a, a Gentile, he's not doing anything wrong because his God, the Talmud, gives him the, the license to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, it does. And I think it, even that's brought up in, in this one chapter. But here we're in a pretty good part here. Uh, the single description, he says, um, is of the Jew that is that he is in business. That, you know, this includes a larger percentage of Jews than members of any other race is, is that he is in business. He says it may be only gathering rags or whatever, but he's in business. Uh, the Jew is supremely gifted for business, and he, you know, Jews have gone into, we call them into trade, traders, and that's where they're, that's where they're happiest. And he writes, the Gentile boy works his way up, taking employment in the productive or technical departments, 
But the Jewish boy prefers to begin as messenger, salesman, or clerk, anything so long as it is connected with the commercial side of the business. And uh, here's some, a little statistic real quick. An early Prussian census uh, showed this characteristic of a total population of 269 and, and a little more, a thousand people, uh, Prussians. The Jews were 6% of that. And, uh, of course, then the, uh, the Prussians were uh, 94%. It says of this, uh, of this uh, 6%, 12,000 of them were traitors. Uh, no, that was 16,000 Jews in this population in 269. 12,000 were traitors, and 4,000 uh, were workmen. And of the, uh, he calls it the Gentile population. And, you know, later he talks about how Gentile, later in the book, Gentile is a word in, uh, invented by Jews. I mean, that for us, uh, that's right. not our word. We don't call ourselves. So I'm, I'm trying to remember to change Gentile to white always because we never talk like that. <laughs> well, but, well, it's, so, a, it's, it's <laughs> a word that... It's a word that the King James translators and, and the early Bible translators started using, and they were wrong for using it, and, and it has a long history behind it. It's a Latin word, gentilis, and, and, and it means those of the same race, actually. It, it means to indicate those who are related to you, actually, in original Latin. And, and for some strange reason the King James translators, rather than take the Greek word ethnos in the New Testament and translate it as nation, they, tran- they didn't translate it. That They made up a word, Gentile, and, and today the, the people are taught in church that Gentile means non-Jew, and that's a lie. It's actually, it, it means just the opposite. The word gentilis in Latin means somebody of the same race, but the word ethnos in Greek means a nation, or, or an ethnicity, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the, the gospel was to be spread to all of the nations, and, and there's a, a, a biblical context to that, and, and it never meant non-Jew, ever. And, and, but that's the meaning that they've adopted for it. 2,000 yeah, years. Yeah, and after we, the New we all go along with it. Yes. You know, I mean, along. we call ourselves Gentiles. I've been doing it. It just seems to make it easier. That's where how we, you know, if, if the... If the if the, if the conversation is in, in general that's been going on for a long time is using these words, well, we think, well, I'll, you know, I'll use this, these words too so everybody knows what I'm talking about. But that's a big mistake. And, you know, this is, this is hard to break these, these habits when we see these words all the time uh, used this way. But anyway, there was uh, out, of this, uh, out of this total population of 269,000, uh, 12,000 were Jewish traders and 17,000 were were, uh, Prus- uh, let's say, uh, Prussian white traders. So uh, not traitors, but traitors. And so look at, and yet the, uh, the Jews were only 6% of the population and the, and the whites were 94%. So th- this is a huge number. What were all the rest of these whites doing? They weren't working in trade, not very many of them, because there was 100, out of 153,000, only 17,000 worked in trade. So well, you know, well, we kind of hand this stuff over to these people. Whites are naturally craftsmen right. and, and farmers and, and husbandmen and, and vineyard keepers. What we're not naturally traders. And in, in medieval Europe, for, for, um, for a thousand years, 
whites did not engage in international trade hardly at all. And whites didn't even have money or use, for the most part, in feudal Europe, whites did not use, white people did not use money. They paid, that they used barter, that they, they worked for the lord of the manor, that they, they gave him a percentage of their increase in exchange for the land, and they, they made their own trades, their own crafts on the side, and they used barter to acquire everything they needed, and they paid their, 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 their um, what, what they were obliged, their obligations, they paid in kind. In, in other words, if you grew yeah. cabbages yeah. Well, and, and you had to give um, 20% of your cabbages to the lord of the manor whose land you were tilling, well, well and you grew 300 cabbages, you gave him 60 cabbages. <laughs> That's what he got. I mean, yes, yeah, and you know, the international part, that really developed under Jews. And, you know, the... the uh, the uh, regular uh, Christian Europeans were not were not internationally didn't think internationally, and we'll we'll see no, that they were the for- Jews got made all their success because they made things international, and they had this huge international network, or that you know they they were everywhere and they they worked together. Uh, the networking is absolutely un, uh, a- absolutely proven that they do that. They still do it, and that's how that is the way that they have become more successful than anyone else, if you want to call it success. Uh, that's how they got richer than all the rest of us. Not because they're smarter, not because they're better or more talented, but because they used this, they, they ended up being dispersed all around the world, and they used their, this international network. It's, it's like the Mossad, deception, you know, uh, by deception we will wage war. So they do, this is deceptive, really, uh, and this is the way they do it. Well, well, it, it's um, you know, the Jews got into the courts of the kings. The Jews were were Char- yeah. Charlemagne brought the Jews into the Holy Roman Empire, and he brought the Jews. and And this is circa 900 A.D. Right? That they 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 were excluded from the Holy Roman Empire for the longest time. They were excluded from Christendom basically from the time of Theodosius II, and um, in in the sixth century. And the um, Charlemagne admitted them into the Holy Roman Empire because he saw them as useful for commercial purposes. And wherever the Jews went in Europe, they had to receive permission from the kings. And in, in England, for instance, the Jews didn't really get into England until the Norman invasion. And it, it's suspected, and I think there's evidence, but I don't have it myself, that the Jews also helped finance that. Well, well, the Jews were admitted into, into England in, with the Norman invasion, but wherever they went, they had to get permission. Yeah, you had to get permission. The, the, Europe always had certain open cities, but you had to get permission to settle in a town or a village. You, you just didn't move in. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you know, there was not that libertarian freedom that we have now. Right, and the kings had to grant them permission to establish themselves in certain towns and, and to own land in, in any certain um, shire or county or town and, and to have houses in any... And, and once they received that permission, they were still heavily regulated and could only live in certain areas. And they, they, they were sort of above the local law, 
because they were granted license by the kings and protected by the kings wherever they went. And the kings used the Jews because they could heavily tax the Jews. So, so the Jew w- would cheat on the taxes as much as he could and amass all the wealth that he could and, and, and try to avoid you know, giving the kings everything. And, and um, that they leached and parasited off the people and off the, no- yeah, well, they, the lower they, noble they, classes. It was the people who suffered for that. that the Jews paid their high taxes to the kings for the most part, but then they were able to just, just uh, uh, what's the word for that, just uh, really take advantage of the people in such a horrible way. And so it was the people who ended up paying all that, not the Jews. The well, Jews well, right. built it pretty well. And they had, that, they had the protection of the king. And, and the Jews? So the people, couldn't, the people, for the most part, couldn't go and hurt the Jews because the Jews had the protection of the king. They, they weren't able right. to just go and attack these Jews. Exactly, uh, and, and that was the problem with disappearing children in the Middle Ages in, in 12th and 13th century, 14th century England, France, and Spain. And, and children would be missing, and, and the, the, the people would complain, and the kings wouldn't want to hear it. What's well, a couple of kids every once in a while? It's no big thing. And, and the, yeah, you know, compared to all, all of the money they were making from them, and, and until, um, yeah, you know, until the, the protests got so loud that, that the, um, the, the pogroms occurred or, or the kings would expel them. And, and in, yeah. in um, Britain's case, they were expelled in 1290, that they were expelled from, from many places. In, you know, in something Europe. that's pointed out here is that, I think later on in this very chapter, uh, is that uh, when they were expelled from one place, they took all their wealth with them to the next place, and then that became the wealthiest part of the world. Right. Like when they when they were expelled from Spain, uh, uh, Spain was the richest country. Spain and Portugal and and even in Italy. And then when they were when they were expelled, they went up to the Netherlands and uh, and few other places around there. And then they uh, that became the, uh, the leading trade and banking center of the world. But yes, before that, Spain and, and Italy had been the banking center. And now then it became, they took all that with them. So, you know, this, this financial thing they have. So um, to go well, on. Well, what was never examined, and, and, and it, it's, I don't know, it's amazing to me, that the Jews should have been stripped of their wealth whenever they left the land because the Jew never produced anything. Well, now, in one part here, they say that somehow the Jews managed to um, put, see, they, at the end here, it talks about all the things they invented financially and one was like the check and the and the things like that so if they they were able to put their wealth and, and their gold and so on into some uh, payable to the bearer or something so that their name wasn't on it so they didn't lose it and uh they could somehow keep it or retrieve it and that was one way that they held on to their well, wealth. well that was so that they could lie about it that it wasn't theirs well yeah they and the check was invented on fraud too that yeah. they, they, they um, it, it started in, and as far as I know, in modern times, in the banks of France, gold was put on deposit, and and when what and the Jew would just give you a receipt for your gold, and what the Jew eventually started doing was floating a lot more receipts than he had actually gold, right? Well, yeah, yeah, we have, we have that story. You know, Ford says uh, toward the end here that uh, I think I, I think I read that. That um, that the uh, that gold that they're they they are the ones who made gold 
the the um, the, the, the mark of wealth that we that we use, and that uh, it's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous to say that gold is uh, you know is the basis for money and for wealth and so on. But they have so much gold. They they control the gold. They control the diamonds and all that stuff. And, and so, even when we were on the gold standard, when we were on the gold standard, they were manipulating gold prices. Yeah. Yeah, well, they do that all. So let's say that uh, Ford is saying here, the question is, if, if the Jew is in control now, how did it happen? You know, are we so, first he says, uh, they, they say it's their superior ability. But uh, we say no, it was It's not their superior ability. So, so what is it? Well, um, they they it's their networking. You know, their 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 uh, what I already mentioned the uh, uh, international networking. But secondly, he says something interesting here that um, that they were um, they, when they when they when they made their big moves from one country to another, they they didn't uh, they didn't come as poor people. He says, like when the Jewish immigrants came to the United States, uh, they came with the financial backing of European Jewry behind them. Not all of them, but uh, but some of them. And they were ready to set themselves up very nicely. They didn't come like most of the, he says, most of the Germans and the Poles who came with no resources, but their ambition and their strength and their willingness to work and so on. I can certainly attest to that with uh, my ancestors, and I know many, many people can. But when, um, amongst the Jewish immigrants, of course, many of them were poor. They always had their poor people. But they had their others who, uh, who were sent here, who came here with lots of financial backing so that they could start, uh, you know, being a powerful group of people. And so this is another benefit that they've had that the rest of us have not had. And this comes, again, from that, that international networking idea that's just another part of it well well you know we're told that well oh we shouldn't judge people we should treat all people equally and and christians have really have that have had that and ingrained in them that we should give everybody an equal opportunity for business yeah yeah and, and we fall for that stuff yeah you know what when when you go to a bank and get a loan it yeah you know you you think you, you project the, those values onto everybody that you deal with that, that if you grew up with those values, that everybody has those values. And it's not true of the Jew. If you and a Jew go to get a bank, to a bank to get a loan, to a Jewish-controlled bank to get a loan, and all of the banks were Jewish-controlled, to buy a particular business in town, who do you think is going to get that loan? You're not going to get the loan. And the Jews operate as a, a cabal that they favor each other constantly, and, and they'll make sure that they control certain industries and certain businesses, and they use their power of the purse to do that. They only got that power of the purse because for a thousand years in feudal Europe, Christians did not use money. Christians did not amass wealth. Christians, that, that they lived a, a, a life of subsistence and bartered for what they needed. That they they didn't that that concept of amassing wealth and using that to control governments and to control the people around you is alien to the Christian mind and it comes naturally to the Jew. 
And that's the biggest difference, and, and that's why they are a parasitic race. They went into Europe poor and, 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 and amassed wealth wherever they went through treachery, through pandering, through usury, through all of the unseemly vocations. They were Europe's gambling houses. They were Europe's whores. They were Europe's whoremasters. They were Europe's usurers. They were Europe's coin clippers. They were Europe's forgers for a thousand years. Well, here's something that might interest you. Uh, I thought I thought of, uh, of uh, Krishna Jenny when I was reading this because he says that, uh, he's, he's saying that um, originally Jews were just, people who worked the land and, you know, were peasants on the land and so on, wherever they were, and that, uh, you know, what we call Jews, what he's calling Jews, what, what we generally call Jews. Then he says the law of Moses uh, uh, said that the, uh, made a money aristocracy such as Jewish financiers form today impossible because it forbade the taking of interest. And it, it made impossible continuous employment of profit run out of another's distress. Profiteering and sheer speculation were well, not well, favored under that system, and there was no land hogging. The land was apportioned among the people. Here, uh, and here, you were not allowed to do bad things to your Carolyn, own people. Here is the disconnect, Carolyn. Here is the absolute disconnect. Right here. Well, I know, because this is, okay. these were not Jews back then. Thank you, Carolyn. Yeah, that that's they were the not point Jews. I was trying to make. So he's pointing out that these people originally were different people. Right. But then something happened. And, well, uh, <laughs> and they had this thing called the Year of Jubilee, which, and this sounds really crazy, because uh, to us now, because even though uh, you... Uh, you sold your land or you lost your land but through debt or something or your property, it was returned every 50 years. I guess it was just the land I'm talking about. Every 50 years, even if you, through your own fault, lost it, it was returned to the original family ownership, and this was called the year of Jubilee. Well, well the biblical law... A, this was to keep a whole a thing connected, very much like Hitler uh, was doing in Germany. Exactly. Keep, keep the nation whole and together and undivided, and uh, but this is not what the Jews. Uh, what what happened eventually? What we know, what we call these people, uh, as we call them, you know, the Jews now are very different. What happened? How did well, they, this is the biggest mistake of taking it for granted that the Jews today are the Israelites of the Old Testament. The, mm -hmm. the Jews of today are not the Israelites of the Old Testament. Ford errs greatly here, but it's an error that churchmen have been committing for for many years. It, it's the, the people of the Old Testament were not Jewish. They were never Jewish. They were Hebrew. They were Israelites. The, the confusion between Jew and Israelite is an old one, and it's, it, it's confusion. It's not right. It's wrong. The yeah. Hebrews were the ancestors of many of the European, white Europeans today. And the Jew is the descendant of a small part of Judah, but mostly of the Edomites and Canaanites of the Old Testament. Now, in, in Old Testament okay. times, but, right? But now, you know, Bill, you talk about this a lot, so maybe we should go on uh, because you made that point. And because there's a lot of interesting stuff here. You well, mind? Well, right, but let, let me just let me okay, make okay. A, a couple of quick statements. <laughs> okay. the, 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 Canaanite, the word Canaanite became synonymous in the Old Testament 
with merchant. And it was translated that way correctly many times. Canaanites became synonymous with the merchant. The Canaanites and the Edomites were the usurers and the merchants of the ancient world. And today, the Jews actually, for the most part, descend from the Canaanites and Edomites, and they happen to be the merchants and the usurers of the modern world. It's the same animal. They are the same people doing what they have always done and doing it in a different name. Okay, so he says, and he uses the word Jews, but we'll use the word um, the uh, Hebrew people, never got rich out of one another. That, that was one of their rules. But then they turned it into something kind of else, something else kind of. Um, they decided uh, uh, to, uh, that they could, do, uh, they could do business amongst the uh, other people on a different basis. And uh, this was called the law of the stranger. And unto us, which is defined in their law now. Now, I don't know if this is, this might even be in the town. Where is this? No, no that's in the Bible. Thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon right. usury. And that's in the Bible, and that's correct. And that's the way we should transact our business today. So that outsiders do not come into your land and take advantage of your um your community yeah. with your brethren, right? Okay. Well, then what, you don't what, want a Mexican here. In, in other words, if, if the white people of Texas never loaned money to each other on usury and just loaned things to each other like they should, like the Bible demands that we do, mm-hmm. well, well, then we don't want the Mexican coming in and borrowing from us at freely so that he yes. could take advantage yeah. of us, right? Well, yeah. we don't want the outsiders well, that, doing that. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so then, now this makes sense too. Then he says it was the dispersal, being dispersed among the nations. Well, uh, you know, that's, you take that differently too. But the Jew, whenever this, this uh, Edomite Canaanite became, uh, you know, dispersed himself everywhere, uh, that's when he had the opportunity to practice this more and to, uh, to well, he, they just adopted this, I guess, for their own purposes, and they became a people without their own land and then, uh, you know, were willing to, to use this ethics of a stranger for, uh, against everybody else. Well, well, let's put it this way. We, we have, um, I've read 700 years of classical history, uh, okay, in, in, mm-hmm. in, in, in Greek and, and Latin, you know, the, the Roman writers. And I have writers. Well, well, nobody ever called themselves a Jew outside of Judea and, and the people of Judea for 700 years, right? From the time of Homer all the way down to the time of Christ, okay? Only the people that are recognized as Judeans ever called themselves Jews. And we know the history of Judea very well from Josephus and from the classics. And, and the people of Judea, who called themselves Judeans, who later practiced Phariseeism, uh, who practiced Phariseeism and later you know, practiced the religion of the Talmud and have taken it down from the, the, the Talmud was actually put in writing between the 4th and 6th centuries AD, right? And, and have taken it down from there. Those people are the only people in history that have ever been called Jews in, in, in modern times and in classical Judeans in classical times. And those people were not dispersed until after 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, right? 
and, and there was actually another rebellion later on in Palestine called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, and the Romans drove them all out. And, and um, Christ said, speaking of the Judeans in Luke chapter 21, and, and this is the real dispersion of the Jews, right? Speaking of his enemies in Luke chapter 21 in the Gospel, he says, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And that's exactly what happened after 70 A.D. That's the, the, the diaspora of the Jews, okay? It okay, didn't happen until after 70 A.D. Well, well, because the Judeans, Judea was a multi-ethnic state okay. from about 150 B.C. down to 70 A.D. And it was comprised of Edomites and Canaanites and a small remnant of the old tribe of Judah that it had returned to Jerusalem in, in, um, in, in well, well, around 520 B.C., right? And, and those people had actually gone out and mixed with the Edomites and the Canaanites and converted them all to Judaism. This is recorded in the histories of Josephus, and, and it's also evident in Strabo and in Dio and, and in several other of the classical writers. Okay, well, let's, let's go past the rest of that because it's a little too confusing then. And um, well, now, well, we're it's talking, a long now we're talking about the the Jew. Now we're talking about the Jew and his uh, his uh, dispersion. Um, probably wouldn't have been as it was unless, except that he was a traitor. And being a traitor, wanting to deal in trade, he, he drew him around the earth. This is what uh, the, the book says. There were uh, Jews in China at an early date. Right. They appeared as traitors in England at the time of the Saxons. They were in South America 100 years before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth Rock. Now, these are the real Jews. Uh, the Jews established a sugar industry in the island of St. Thomas in 1492, right. and they were established in Brazil. And here's interesting. They, they were the original rum runners. Yeah, yeah. And these, these detectives that he had working for him, looking this stuff up, they found out that the first white child, Born in Georgia was a Jew named Isaac Minnis, M-I-N-I-S. The first uh, white. I, I don't know if I call him white, right? I, I wouldn't call yeah. him white. I'm well, sorry. that's right. That's right. That's what he said. But I, how how can that? Be? Oh, the first. Well, that, that's all there. Um, I, I guess. I do know. What would have been in Georgia before before the whites were there? Well, well, I well, well the Spaniards were in Florida, right? The Spaniards were in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. At, at, at a, in the 1500s, and, and St. Augustine in Florida is probably the oldest um, European settlement in the eastern United States, if I'm not mistaken. Well, well, um, well yeah, yeah, Jews are not white. I agree with you. See, I see that got past me there just because I thought that was interesting. But, you know, the first, uh, what they call a white child, but um, before any white children were born in Georgia, there was a Jew born there named Isaac Minnis. Well, well the, um, okay, Georgia was... I forget the religious sect that founded Georgia. I, I did some research on this for a program a couple of years ago. Georgia was one of the, the – they were the first colony in South Carolina along with them. I think Georgia was first, though, that readily admitted Jews from Europe into the colonies. All of the northern colonies basically at first excluded Jews. I mean, Pennsylvania was founded – William Penn intended Pennsylvania, which it, it – at that time included Delaware and New Jersey, right? He intended that to be a Christian empire in North America. 
Mm-hmm. And, of course, we know the history of Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Colony, and Massachusetts Colony in Maine, the Bay Colony, and, and they were all founded as Christian colonies and, and, and Christian settlements. And Maryland was founded as a Catholic colony. And, and, and Georgia and South Carolina were um, the, the first colonies to be very susceptible and to allow Jews to practice openly and, and admitted Jews. And, and Georgia was founded by Protestants. I, I really do, the, the name's on the tip of my tongue, and I can't quite get it out. But, but um, South Carolina, the Carolinas, South and North Carolina were given, that they were granted to the supporters of Charles II, you know, the restoration of, of the British crown after the time of Cromwell. And they were granted and treated from that time as um, economic opportunities, right? That They, they were... The, the people that received them as a gift from Charles II, that's why they called it Carolina, that they treated that you know, as an economic advantage and, and that they didn't care who settled in it. They only cared about making money from it, right? The, the tobacco yeah. industry, and that's why there were so many slaves. When money, when money rules, that's what happens. And, and uh, <clears throat> it, does, it does a lot of harm to all the, mostly right. to everyday people, the normal people. Um, well, for that reason, there were Jews in Georgia, and, and I think it was a Scottish sect. I, I can't quite get it. Up. Well, well um, there were Jews in Georgia, and there were Jews in South Carolina at very early times. Well, I but do. Now, I've now, heard a lot about Jews in South Carolina. First, Even now, I mean, they're, right. pretty, they're pretty strong in South Carolina, well, well, or right. North Carolina, or both. And, and that's because they were the benefactors in, of, of um, the good graces of Charles II, because Jews were among his supporters in, in, um, in the Restoration. Now, mm. now the, um, and, and Cromwell, too, was financed by Jews when they well, yeah. beheaded Charles I. Well, well so, so Jews were behind that. Well, well um, I, I, with, with the expulsion of the Jews from Spain under Ferdinand and Isabella, many, many Jews bought their way, a, a lot went to Holland and Germany, right? And, and many of them bought their way onto the ships of the conquistadors, and that's why there were Jews in the Caribbean, in Puerto Rico, in Cuba, in Brazil, at, all at very early times, with, with the Spanish conquistadors that were settling those areas at that very time. You have to, you have to acknowledge that they had... They had the courage, or whatever, or the you know the the, uh, the to to go into new places like they did because they have just gone all over the world. Well, and well they yeah, but they had the sword. They're not they're not people who are bound by any land or anything or any ties like that. Right, so. and and they've always been like that. But they also had the swords of the Spaniards, and in those places to. To make sure that they, yes, yes, yes. That, they, they weren't the pioneers, really. They went, like you say, they paid their way to go along, and then they were there doing business. Right. Uh, now here's going on with this. Now it, it, it points out that um, another a talent of theirs, uh, which contributed to their rise in financial power, was is the Jewish ability to invent new devices for doing business. You know, wherever, whatever is in your interest, you're pretty good at, and the business was their interest, so. Uh, they um, one of the things they did was they uh, many, it says many of the indispensable instruments of credit and exchange were thought out by Jewish mer- merchants not only to use between themselves but
but to check and hold the Gentiles with whom they dealt. The oldest bill of exchange uh, ever known was drawn by a Jew, one Simon Rubin, and the promissory note was a Jewish invention and also the check uh, payable to the bearer, which we've already discussed a little bit. So these well, well, are the things they devised. Yeah, you know, this is all true, right? And, and the Jews devised these things because when the Jews came to England in, 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 um, with the Normans, right, and, and um, the Saxons, they, they had no... Um, interest in financial devices. They didn't loan money at interest. They didn't, for the most part, even use money. The feudal system did not revolve around currency the way the world does today. And, and that's true not only in, in um, England, but in most of Europe. Well, well um, the, it was the... the it was the goal of the Jew to destroy the feudal system, and they really couldn't do that until probably the 16th century when it breathed its last gasps, right? Well, well the, um, the Jews came to England and started loaning money, and, and they had no protection in law for that money, and the Anglo-Saxons had no laws governing the, the loaning of money and, and, and the protecting of debtors and creditors and all of that. They just, that was alien to them. That they just, so, so the Jews pulled the shitar out of their pocket. And, and this is documented. This is well documented. I did a program on this a couple of years ago. The Jews had the shitar. The shitar is the ancient Babylonian mercantile code. You want to talk about mystery Babylon? Uh, okay. The, the commercial law of England is founded on the shitar because when the Jews appealed to the kings for laws governing their financial transactions, well, well the kings left that basically up to the Jews. And, and, and they instituted, the, the kings agreed to it, but the, eventually the, the shitar was instituted as the commercial law of England. And, and eventually it became the commercial law of America, too. It, it's, you know, that's when the mortgage was developed. Okay. Well, it says, here's where it says that um, they conceal their uh, assets under bearer, you know, payable to the bearer, their checks and so on, so that um, when, they were, uh, when they were suddenly, their, you know, their money was looted from them or they were attacked or whatever and they were sent away, uh, they... Uh, they, some of this, they were able to save some of this because, as, as I said, it's not, it wasn't under their name. I don't really understand how this works, but that's, that's what it says. Um, because the, if, if anybody sees their goods, then they, they, were, they protected themselves by confining their goods on policies that didn't bear any names to right. the bearer, whatever, how that works. Well, well right. That was to protect their assets, right? Yeah. Right. That, right. That's very credible. Yeah. I, I don't know about that in, in particular, but that's very credible. Yeah, so um, it says the, uh, the Jew is the only and original international capitalist, um, but he prefers not to emblazon that fact upon the skies, it says, but he prefers to use Gentile banks and trust companies as his agents. Well, we know this has been going on for a long time, but now they're pretty, they're, uh, there's a lot of emblazoning upon the skies, and they're not quite so quiet. Uh, they don't have to be anymore. You right, know? they control it all now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so they don't have these as many fronts set up, although they still have plenty of fronts. And it says that the Jews were in control of the first stock exchange. Oh, um, 
In Berlin, Paris, London, Frankfurt, and Hamburg, it was all started by Jews. They were in control of all those stock exchanges. And Venice and Genoa were openly referred to in the talk of the day, whenever this was, um, as Jew cities. Jew cities. What well, well, the uh, were great trading and banking facilities. Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice was a Jew. And, and one of the most yeah. famous lines was from that play, what was... Um, the, the statement about getting the pound of flesh from the Christians, right? You know, later on in in the uh, in this uh, in these article uh, chapters, you, you find where he talks about how the Jews. Well, this becomes more uh, in, in America how the Jews when they started um, trying to uh, shut, um, trying to stop schools, uh, say from uh, from uh, reading that in their classrooms, the Shakespeare. Uh, um, plays that, that show the Jews badly, like the Merchant of Venice and, and some others, and well, they really go all out to uh, shut that down. They they don't they would like to just destroy that altogether if they could, just like they want to destroy uh, Wagner's operas. I mean, anything that 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 they think doesn't doesn't fit uh, making them the kings of the world, um, they they would just destroy it all. They're the most destructive people. They could they. They don't care anything about our culture while they cry and moan about what's done to their culture. Well, well, all the time. They're, they're very um, assertively defensive of the, the, their brand, so to speak. That They don't like any public criticism whatsoever, and they seek to close no, it all that's, down. That's, that's or, exactly the way. They seek to close it down, and he, he, he goes through that in all kinds of detail. It's quite impressive. Uh, of all the efforts that they made, oh, from 1900 to around 1920 or so, all the efforts that they made and how successful they were in the United States in in uh, changing the uh, the Sunday laws, you know, changing uh, what was done in the schools, um, what the, what governments could say in their in their meetings and so on, uh, because if it if it didn't, if it made the Jews uncomfortable, then it shouldn't be done. And here you had these few Jews. How they managed to get this stuff across? But again, they, they would have, they would influence the the person who was most influential in the situation and get that, get a few people to uh, vote for it and, and talk the others into it. And then here would be all these Christians voting to do what the Jews wanted them to do and, and say they wouldn't do any Christian prayers or they wouldn't do. You know, they they wouldn't use the word Jesus, or they wouldn't have any Christmas uh, decorations or things. It was just amazing, amazing. I mean, that was going on in some of the big cities, uh, bigger areas uh, back then. There's still some holdout on it, but oh, so much has been has been changed in that way. Well, anyway, so then he says the Bank of England was established upon the counsel and assistance of Jewish immigrants from Holland. Uh, the Bank of Amsterdam and the Bank of Hamburg arose through Jewish influence. So, um, and, the, the, and I already talked about how wherever they went, they took the business with them. When they left Spain, and, and which was the world's gold center, then they, they took it with them to Holland, and that became the world's gold center. And uh, the distribution um, of Jews all, all over Europe uh, made this kind of thing possible made it possible for them to be international. And, of course, that's in the title of the book, and this is the key thing about Jews, is their internationalism. I mean, that that's, says everything about them. 
Well, well, they had to be international in Europe for all those years because they hid their wealth. They transferred it to one place to another as quickly as they could. That, that they w- sought refuge in other nations very often in haste because there were, that there were a, at least 100 and, 120 or better times during the Middle Ages alone, dur- during the... Um, Say from the 10th to the 16th century, there were at least 120 occasions where the Jew was run out of one principality or another in Europe, and there there are lists of those occasions extant on the internet. That the um, so so they had to flee for refuge to somewhere. They had to be international, and they've always um, lo- looked out for each other in that regard. But it wasn't because they loved each other; it was because it was a survival tactic. Well, yeah, and then and then here it says that um, the Jewish financiers uh, love to become the agents of national loans. They love they love to have nations for their customers, and this is what they were able to do. Uh, now here it says national loans were facilitated by the presence of members of the same family of financiers in various countries. Of course, the Rothschilds are the ideal example of that that everybody knows about. Um, thus making an interlocking directorate by which uh, one king could be played against another king, government against government, and um, they made they made all the profits. So they they became the uh, the uh, money money lenders to nations. That's where they really really got rich. Um, so he says, uh, not racial. Now, here's where they're talking about the criticism insofar as it respects the more important financiers is not racial at all. I don't know who wrote this. Uh, unfortunately, the element of race, which so easily lends itself to misinterpretation as racial prejudice, is injected into the question by the mere fact that the chain of international finance is, as it is traced around the world, discloses that every link a Jewish capitalist financial family or a Jewish controlled banking system. Well, they're saying that they don't want to, uh, you know, there's this problem with criticizing the Jews as a race, but the fact is that uh, as you check through the chain of international finance, it's linked, it links together everywhere around the world, and at those links, it's between Jewish, uh, Jewish capitalists and Jewish families um, and Jewish banks and so on. So well, well, absolutely. And Adolf Hitler also recognized that. And, and I have one quote here from Mein Kampf, okay. from Hitler in um, in chapter one of Mein Kampf, of the first volume, where he's talking about the Triple Alliance and he's talking about the lure of Germany into World War One. And Hitler said that it was only Jews and Marxists who sought to stir up trouble between Germany and Russia in the years leading up to World War I. And he says that Jewish international finance needed this bait of the Austrian heritage to lure Germany into the Triple Alliance in order to carry out its plans of ruining Germany. For Germany had not yet surrendered to the general control which the international captains of finance and trade exercised over the other states. And that was true of Germany, but it was also, for the, for, to a great degree, true of Russia. And and when the Jews got Germany and Russia into war with each other, they ended up owning them both. And yeah. it's Adolf Hitler saw it, and Henry Ford saw it. 
Yeah, they 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 thought a lot alike, uh, and they recognized that they admired one another. So, and of course, that's another way that people want to demonize Henry Ford for that very reason. But that's for another time. Here it says the Jew was never popular as a race. Even the most fervent Jew will not deny that. Howsoever he may explain it, individuals have some individual Jews have been popular, but um, and uh, some of them even well loved. I mean, but nevertheless, um, they, they're, as a race, they're generally unpopular. Even in modern times, it says, in conditions which render persecution absolutely impossible, this unpopularity exists. But the Jews has not seemed to care. Um, he, 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 he makes it out to be because of his uh, inborn uh, superiority. You know, that's what they say that. They're not popular. People don't like them because they, they're jealous of them, and we're, we're all jealous of them. We know they're superior and so on. Um, uh, I personally don't says, count. Uh, well, just hold on just a second. Uh, the uh, Ford says, uh, or his agents say, that uh, the true reason is that he's always placed his main dependence on cultivating friendship with kings and nobles, and he doesn't care about the common people, what they think of him. So the common people hate him. Absolutely. Okay. And, and that's the way it worked in medieval England. The, the Jews had the, the nobles and the kings in their pockets, in their debt, that mm-hmm. they, were, they were, and they knew that they were a great source of wealth to the kings because of the tax revenue they generated, and, and they were above the law. Yeah. And it says that the policy of the Jews has always been to go to headquarters, that's in quotes. They never tried to placate, for example, the Russian people, but they did endeavor to enlist the Russian court. They never tried to placate the German people, but they did succeed in permeating the German court. And then in England, they shrugged their shoulders at the outspoken anti-Jew reactions of the British populace. What, what care they? Have they not all of lord them at their heels? Do they not hold the strings of, British, of Britain's purse? Well, now, now, what's really funny about that is if, and I know you haven't, but, but if you read the, the, the histories of Josephus and, and the history of Judea in the 1st century and 2nd century B.C., and, and especially in the 1st century B.C. And, and later in the 1st century A.D., the Jews were always going to Rome to complain about the Roman governors. And they would go right to Rome and complain about the governor and use their power of the purse to have the governor removed. And they, Pontius Pilate, the Jews had him removed. The Jews had him recalled. He crucified Christ on behalf of the Jews, and, and not three, four years later, the Jews had him recalled to go face Tiberius and, and, and to answer charges, that, accusations that the Jews made against them, and, and under pretense. Yeah, well, that's, that's how they are. So through this ability of theirs to go to headquarters, um, you know, that accounts, again, for their stronghold, for how strong they, they have become, not their, because they're superior right. in, in any way. It says if a government wanted a loan, the Jewish court could arrange it through Jews at other financial centers and political capital. And so yep. this is why they are valuable to these governments who are always wanting to spend money they don't have, usually to go to war for some reason. Yep, for the Jew. And... and- even in the days of Herod, Herod the Great, who was an Edomite by birth, and Josephus admit, you know, he, he attests to that several times. Herod the Great had a direct line to Julius Caesar, 
and went to Caesar and, and to Augustus Caesar. And he went to Caesar often. Every time he needed something, he went right to Caesar. He went to Rome to get something from Caesar. They did it all yeah. the time. It, it's incredible. And they went right to headquarters all the time. And, and it goes back to the first century B.C. It says here that the first time an army was ever fed in the modern commissary way, it was done by a Jew. And that's because he had the capital and he had the systems because he had those connections all around. You know, whatever was needed, that's, why, that's another reason why Jews are so popular with uh, government uh, presidents and prime ministers and kings and queens and so on, because uh, when they needed something like that, the Jews were able to do it better than anybody else at that time because they had all these connections, you know, like for feeding an army. Well, you need all this food, you need transportation, you need, you know. Well, well right, but that's always, that, that's actually an ancient practice also. And they were called camp followers in Roman times, right? And, yeah, and, okay. And, and it was well, that's the, another way where they attach themselves to the, to the powers that be and, and our agents for, like we, I said right in the beginning, agents for the, for the uh, a government uh, in the First World War, and then they just stayed in government. You right. know, the government makes them their agents because they, have, they do have a, so many business connections, and they're so good in, in dealing in, with business in this way. Well, well, right. They controlled international trade because we did not engage in international trade. Mm-hmm. It, it's that simple. They, you know, you don't find Englishmen until, you know, you do find it in the time of the empire, but the, Engl- the English Empire was basically driven by Jewish money, too. That's why the Bank of England was founded. Once the Bank of England was founded, what do we have? Once the English people were, w- once the, I'm sorry, once the English nobles were willing to sacrifice the English people on behalf of the expansion of international trade, mm-hmm. on behalf of the Bank of England and the Jews behind it, you find the British Empire. It was driven by Jewish money. It was driven by commerce. Hudson Bay Company, East India Company, Virginia Company. They were all stock-sharing, stock-holding companies. And, and, Isn't that something? Yeah, yes, and, and that's what drove the British Empire. What was the... the but no, wonder, no wonder Britain was so totally beholden to the Jew and so totally... I mean, you know, uh, they, they were sold out a long time ago. Well, well, right, but Ford is right. The Jews were in China at a very early time. They were driven out of Christendom in the 6th century, and they spread out into Kazakhstan. That's where the, the Khazars, the Ashkenazi Jews come from, and they were working the trade routes to China, and they brought the bubonic plague and the black plague and all those plagues back with them to Europe, and they were working the trade routes. There were Jews in India at a very early time. It's... um. I don't know if I could prove it, but there's evidence that dictates that Alexander the Great wanted to conquer India because and, and, and died at Babylon because the Jews in Babylon were taking um, – the, the, the silver exchange had a much higher rate of exchange with gold in India than it did in Rome, and the Jews were playing that back and forth with Babylon at its epicenter. And, and from out of Babylon, they were taking silver, which, which traded in, in the, the Greek world 20 pieces of silver to, a, to an equivalent piece of gold. And in India, 
seven pieces of silver got you an equivalent piece of gold, right? And, and there's evidence that the Jews at Babylon were draining silver from the Greek world and trading it for gold in India and getting three times their money and bringing the gold back and buying well, more silver. Sounds like exactly what they do. You know, I forgot to put my uh, headphones on, and I wonder if I'm sounding all right. I'm going to do make that change right now, although we're almost, well, I can't even see what I'm doing. can't do it. Okay, do I sound all right? Yes. Okay. Um, all right, another... Uh, Another modern business method whose origin is credited to Jewish financiers, Ford says, is that by which related industries are brought together. <laughs> That's not hard to figure out because, uh, you know, as we know, uh, you know, merging companies together, and the, 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 the purpose of that is to conserve all the profit accruing along the line. Where you were just talking about how, how much they wanted to profit from the silver and gold exchange. Well, also, if they can own all the industries, even though they're separate industries, uh, if they can bring them all together under something, then they can control all the way down the line the prices and so on. They have an example. They had an example in here, but, you know, um, like uh, from the or- origination of the power, uh, what they – what are they, the, the, that's electricity kind of down to the delivery of the streetcar ride. But perhaps, uh, you know, the main purpose of that is that the control of the powerhouse, um, the, by the control of the powerhouse or the electric company, the price of current could be increased to the car company. That's probably the streetcar company. And by the control of the streetcar company, the cost of a ride could be increased to the public. The control is thus receiving an additional profit all down the line. You know, they, they invent all this clever stuff. Well, well that, right. I, I mean, they, they, they invented the department store so that Jewish oh, yeah. manufacturers from across the world can sell their goods in one place and put all the other stores out of business and all the other manufacturers out of business. Yeah, that's another one of the things that they're very prominent in. Um, now, let's see. Uh, under the... Now, okay, here's an interesting statement. Whatever else may be national, no one today believes that finance is national. He writes, finance is international. Nobody today believes that international finance is in any way competitive. There are some independent banking houses, but few strong independent ones. Uh, The great masters, you know, and it goes on and on. But the point is uh, that uh, there's no competition in all of this, and uh, and and particularly finance, which has been international for back before even he was writing this. Well, well, the media has always tried to sell us on the fact that well, well, on the belief that international finance was fair and competitive, right? And and the the, the Jewish-controlled media still tries to do that. But I've always been under the impression that the only thing that's competitive about the, the international finance and, and, and the, 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 the entire money game, the, the stock brokerages and the bond brokerages, it is which Jew is going to get your money, right? Well, which Jew is going to steal your, your, your Gentile life savings, right? <laughs> that, that, to me, is the only thing competitive about it. And, and it's, it, it's um, 
Well, well, it's not truly competitive because the the real wealth is concentrated in into the hands of a a few small bank, a few, yeah, a small number of international banks that are um, that that are in collusion together and always have been. Yes, and you know, Bill, we've actually gotten to the end of this uh, chapter, and here's the last uh, the last paragraph. I'm going to read this because it kind of ties it up real well. Uh, you know, there's an old saying, to the victor belongs the spoil, he says. And in a sense, it is true that if all this power of control has been gained and held by a few men of a long-despised race, then either they are supermen to whom it is powerless to resist, or they are ordinary men whom the rest of the world has permitted to obtain an undue and unsafe degree of power. Unless the Jews are supermen, the Gentiles will have themselves to blame for what has transpired, and they can look for rectification in a new scrutiny of the situation and a candid examination of the experiences of other countries. That's the end of chapter one. Now, again, it brings out where we started that we need to we need this scrutiny of these people and of the situation and what's taking place, which we we've, we've attempted to go into a little bit tonight. And uh, that's the only way. I mean, either we say these people are, are we can't defeat them, or or we have to look to ourselves and say somehow we have allowed this because, and I don't like to blame the whites. I don't. Because it's, they, these Jews are very tricky. And really, uh, but at this point, um, we have to, I think our, our work is to uh, to bring this to the attention of as many people as possible to, to uncover, well, it's been uncovered, but to, to uh, get people to look at it, really, and just how you get people to look at it. And uh, this book, The Independent uh, Jew, The International Jew, this is just chapter one of 80 chapters. And believe me, you know, it doesn't appear to get boring. Uh, it just goes into detail. Um, it, I don't, you know, we have these, these, this tremendous stuff, and it's, not, it's underused, isn't it? It's underused. Well, well, right. The, the international Jew is something that everybody should have been reading in the 1920s so that they could be aware of the Jewish problem and put it into action in their day-to-day lives by not dealing with Jews. It's like the deer that wants ticks. And to say that, that there's a few things I have to say that are difficult to quantify. It, it's to say that the Jew is superior to the Saxon is to say that the tick is superior to the deer. All right? One tick is not going to kill the deer. Ten ticks aren't going to kill the deer. But 500 ticks might bleed it to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and the, the Jew is crafty and cunning and, and, and full of guile and, and treachery and trickery just so that he can rule over you. He, he, he will kiss your ass you. for 50 generations. Yeah. He, he will kiss your ass for 50 generations so the 51st generation of Jew can stab you in the back. If that's what it takes, the Jew is good at that. And, and does that make the Jew superior? Does the destroyer of all culture... It, does that make him superior? That doesn't make him superior. The, the shortcoming that whites have, and especially white Christians, it is that they are gullible in projecting their values onto everybody else that they encounter without understanding that all people are not created equal in that sense. 
that all people, yeah, you know, that has no, that, that's why. Well, yeah, and, and another aspect is this is that we have to, we have to make it clear and clear and get people to accept. I mean, I know your listeners accept it, but uh, so many don't that the Jew is not us. You know, Jews are not white. And people, many white nationalists uh, think that there are good Jews on our side and they embrace them. They're part of the movement and so on, or they accept them in all kinds of ways. They accept all kinds of people that they shouldn't be accepting. So, uh, yeah, you know, there's the only one way that we have our cultural values and we can't expect that other people have these same values. We're only harmed by that when we do that. Well, well, Henry Ford went a long way in this first chapter to, to, to say that there were good Jews and a respected businessman and there were poor Jews oh, and, yeah. and to separate them from the international Jews who, who are the creators of the world's misfortunes, as Goebbels put it, right? Well, well the bottom line is that all of the perceptibly honest Jews, they have always gone along with mm-hmm. the program of the international Jew. Well, whenever it has come up in the voting box, whenever it has come up in, in, in financial decisions, economic decisions, political decisions, the, the, the everyday seemingly honest Jew has never stood up against the international Jew. He's never done it. They've never done it. They've never said, hold it. These guys are evil. Why are we doing this? Why are we voting for this Bolshevik? Well, there's a few of them now who will do it by looking to, uh, they'll look to uh, Israel, and they'll, they'll condemn Israel. But, or they might look to APAC and condemn APAC. But but they won't go further into all these Jews and business and finance and so on. Uh, they won't do that. So what you say is absolutely right. You know we shouldn't be fooled by these part partway measures that a few, right. few, few Jews take. No, and and you'll find that even the honest Jews voted for Obama. The honest Jews vote for gay marriage. The honest Jews vote to have gambling. That They yes. vote for everything that's destructive to white society, and they do it from generation to generation, and they do it with consistency. And they've always done it. Even if they seem to be honest Jews, they've always acted against white culture throughout all their generations. They've been contrary to white civilization and to all what, what we would consider normal morality and, and wholesome culture, that they've always been contrary to it, and they show that all the time in all their generations. So, so there basically aren't any good Jews. It's a myth. It's a lie. And um, I, I would say that if, if, if you could show me a, what, what you could prove to me was a good Jew, he's probably a dead Jew. Well, you know, even if, even if the way I look at it, even if there were some good Jews, we still don't want them in our, in our midst. We just, we, in order to be safe, rather than right. you know, sorry, we need to make a, a rule about that and that we just can't allow any. In, well, what that, would you allow a mosquito? They're all rotten. But, <laughs> would you allow a mosquito on the, on the chance he's not going to bite or a tick on the chance well, he's not going to bite? <laughs> Well, I just say, you know, that people will always point out somebody and they've got somebody, but I just say, you know, we, we just, uh, we have to make the rule and that keeps us safe and, and then we can start finding out who we are and what we are and what kind of society we can have, which is, which would be wonderful, 
uh, without any Jews or any other foreigners. And Jews are foreigners. They're not a part of us. Well, well you know, one, one example I have that's near at hand, a lot of Christians like to point to Nathaniel Kapner and say, oh, there's a good Jew. And I would say, well, no, he's not. He's a disgusting pervert. He's a self-promoter. He walks around making Christians look like circus clowns. He, he's all for diversity and multiculturalism. He's everything that the, what we should despise the Jews for. I don't care if he claims to be a Christian. I don't care if he claims to be anti-Zionist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Those points are moot. What when you see that the man is a disgusting, foul, perverted race mixer? I, I mean, what the hell? Just because somebody agrees with one or two of your key um, pet political ideas doesn't mean that he's any good. Oh, I, you know, one of my pet peeves is these uh, white nationalists who come right out and say, "Well, uh, this person, uh, there's some things I don't agree." You know, they about what they say. There's some things that aren't, aren't good for us, but, but some of their points uh, are, are so, uh, so I pass their stuff around because, uh, you know, they, they make some points that are in line with us. How can, these people ought to be driven out themselves. There's something wrong with these people. Their brain, their, their brains aren't fully functioning. They don't understand. I don't know how you can think like that. So a lot of these people, uh, Captain is one of the people that they like. So it's because so many people define their world with one or two that they define themselves on on one or two positions or platforms and 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 they don't look at the big picture. Yeah, you know, today people are making too much of Israel. You know, Israel. They think, well, if we can if we can solve Israel, well, they're not going to do that. No, if, if Israel and then then somehow we can work on the other stuff. Well, no, no, no. You know that. That's not our main issue, Israel, but they make it there. Absolutely not. It, it's if Israel disappeared tomorrow, we'd still have a Jewish problem. We had a Jewish problem in 1920, and, and you know, yes. <laughs> there, there was no Israel in 1920. I mean, it was on the way, but it wasn't there yet, right? Right. Now it's just it's just uh, now. Here's the thing that fits here uh, in the in the protocols, and lots of times the protocols are brought up. But and that's another thing I think needs to be uh, disseminated more, and we need to study that more. But it is disgusting. But one of them that I came across recently was the one where they're going to create chaos. They want to create. They want to bring up. Uh, they didn't use the word chaos. I don't think. But bring up all these uh, issues. Bring up various sides, various positions of every issue, and and people will be taking. Some people take this position. Some that. This is what we have. You know, in our in our multi political spectrum here um and just it just confuses everyone and they can't think they can't get anything straight about what they do believe because there's too many choices to be had well do i believe it this way or that way or these are some good points here and that and uh this this says this speaks in to my mind for something like uh hitler did with national in his nationalist uh germany because you say, well, this is the way we're going to do it. This is what we need to teach everybody. And if it's, if it's good for the nation, then that should be adopted. Not have all this super freedom going on whereby we can have, uh, and, and they do, they raise, uh, they raise every kind of position on an issue that you can imagine. 
And then we're supposed to, we're, we, are, we are told, well, to really understand, you need to study all this. You know, read all these different positions, listen to everybody, and then make up your mind. Well, after you've listened to everybody and read all these 100 positions, uh, you can't make up your mind. And nobody ever, ever does make up their mind. Well, well you, you know, it's um, people have to learn that we have to put God first, our kindred second, and ourselves third. Uh, and, and that means our kindred, when I say national socialism could be successful if nation comes first, right? And we well, there are a lot of there are a lot of people that I uh, that I share ideas with that that we say we need to put our race first. Well, well, that's what I mean by nation, right? It, it's our race. It's not the geopolitical unit. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, your nation. Well, whenever I say nation, I'm thinking in in the original ethnic term, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's well, a nation is a subdivision of our race, and, and that should always be put first. It should out people. We put our our, race it, first. We put our God first at the same time. Well, well, right. You're exactly right. Yeah. And that that and and the individual comes second. Adolf Hitler said that the individual is nothing unless he he yeah. he lives for his nation. And you know, his, I, people, I, I his race. I and, and, get a little uncomfortable when I would read that. Because, you know, I liked Adolf Hitler, and overall I liked it all. But when I would read that, uh, those things, sometimes I would just get a little uncomfortable because I thought, well, what are people going to think of this? And, and do we really want to – it doesn't sound good. You know, but that's I, Christian. I had those ideas. But I finally uh, – I'm finally uh, won over an understanding of all that. Once you see what this individual – what promoting individualism does, then you see that it's it's not it's not all that it's well, made well, out. Hitler's viewpoint in that aspect is entirely Christian, right? That, yes. That's that's the core. That is the core Christian value. It is loving your brother and, and sacrificing yourself for your people, for yeah. your people, and and, um, and and that comes first, and it's all entirely racial. And, and and that's the core Christian value, and and everything else is secondary. He who loves, yeah, it, it, it it's in um the first epistle of John. If you say you you, you um love God and you don't love your brother, you're a liar. Mm-hmm. If you say you love God and you don't love your people, your race, you're a liar. And then people interpret that to mean brotherhood of all. That's well, that's. That's the interpretation that's given, and that's what has driven Christianity crazy. Well, well, right, but that's because they've extracted Christianity from its historical context. Yeah. And and tried to make it something other, and, and separated God from his creation and God from history. And that can't be done. Christianity cannot be extracted. No belief system can be extracted from its historical context. And I could argue the valid historical context of Christianity all day long. And I have the, the the citations and the references, right? It's um, Christianity is the religion for the white race. That's what it was supposed to be. And it has Saxon values written all over it, that the values of Christianity, when you actually look at them, resonate with Saxons. And the other races of the world don't have those values, and they've never had them.
Right. We only get fooled out of those values when the Jew starts um, beating the drums of false patriotism in the media and, and makes white nation go to war against white nation. And the Jew has been very successful at that for the last um, four or five hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. So the bottom line for me from this is that we need to uh, examine what the Jews are doing along with what other foreigners are doing in our midst. Uh, but, uh, and, um, and when we do, we will find that they, that everything, whatever they're doing is none of it is good for us. None of it. In fact, it's not only not good for us. Some of it has been so disastrous for us and caused so much death and destruction and, and suffering and pain. And then they're the ones who sit around and cry about how they've suffered throughout history from, from the white man, from the European man, from the Christian. Uh, it's just all turned around. It's all opposite uh, what, it, what it really is. So, well, uh, you know, if the Jew has really suffered at the hands of the Christian, why do so many of them insist on living in Christian lands? Well, that's true of all these foreign people, right. non-white people. Right. Greek. All they do is complain about the white man, and this is being pointed out more and more now, and yet they all they all want to be here among us. Why? Well, well, it's the, it, it's actually the Jewish media that's done this, that's created this. It's created a false sense of history. You can see that with this. I'm getting bad feedback from you. Okay, well. You, you can see that with this Trayvon Martin case. It's absolutely hypocritical. Okay, I hope I haven't uh, harmed the, uh, now I'm hearing myself, but I hope I haven't harmed the uh, recording, but well, I well, have my earphones on. I forgot all about it since I was that, on the phone. But. Well, well, that's the first time I noticed it was the last two minutes, right? Okay. It was horrible. Um, hmm. the, the Jewish, the Jews have controlled the media, and they've, you know, back in Henry Ford's day and back in Adolf Hitler's day, the Jews controlled the liberal media. Since the time, and, and, and the liberal media was always well-funded and, and always very vociferous, well, since the time of Adolf Hitler and Henry Ford, the entire media has become liberal. Even the so-called conservative media is very liberal in, in many aspects, and, and where, where it's conservative, it's usually only fiscally conservative to some point, right? It's not conservative. It's not conservative at all. It's a joke that because the Jew has destroyed, that Jewish money has destroyed what conservatism is supposed to be. It's, and, and the neocons have even exacerbated that problem because the conservatives now are just um, towel boys for, for Zionism. It, it's crazy. It, it really is because Americans don't even understand what conservatism is anymore. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's become kind of a militarism. Well, well um, yes, it has. Be, it, it's become global militarism for 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 the, the the defense of the international bankers and and their property and and their will. That's what it is. That's what the British Empire was. That's what the British soldiers were for 150 years, and they've been spent. And now it's the American soldiers' turn to be cannon fodder for the international bankers. And, and basically, that's, you know, that's the message that Ezra Pound tried to send the English people, 
that they were fighting for Sassoons and Rothschilds and people that were never English. And the same is true of, of the American soldier today in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're dying for people that have never had American ideals because they are nationalist, international um, financiers and, and bankers and, and, and merchants. And, and that's what we're fighting and dying for overseas. Mm-hmm. If, if the Jews were really oppressed by Christians, they would all be in Palestine right now and be happy to be there. That's right. That's right. Why wouldn't they all be going there? But they don't go there. Well, well because they're a world network. They need to live off, off the, the white man, basically, but uh, off everybody else in the world in one way or another. And that's what they do. And that, that's how they, they may not have intended that some, at some point, you know, way back in the beginning, but that's, what, that's how they developed. And that's, they don't know any other way, and they don't want to find any other way now. Um, so that's what they are. And if they're bad news for us. Well, well the, the, the Jewish media, the Jewish-controlled media, 96% of it, I think, is controlled by a few Jewish-controlled corporations. And that has um, pandered and lied to and rewritten history for the benefit of non-whites. And they do it every chance they get because their intention is to destroy white society. Well, I agree. I think we've uh, we've made some good points for that, and uh, we've covered the chapter one anyway. Let's see, eighty more programs, Bill, and we'll have, <laughs> we'll have the whole thing. Well, well, the next chapter is short, so the next time we do that, and and hopefully we'll we'll continue this program periodically or, or whenever you're you're um that you're 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 willing to do a segment, and and we'll keep discussing the international Jew over the next months and and possibly longer right 80 something 80 something chapters well well this has been the international jew part one chapter one and this has been carolyn yeager with william fink and carolyn thank you for being here and praise yahweh and, and good night good night